All right, who wants to go on a 40-year car trip today? Raise your hand. Woohoo! 40-year. Do you, do you hate car trips like I do? Uh, really? I mean, if you got whiny kids in the back seat and you're gone for a long time, do you like them? Uh, we're going to talk about the 40-year car trip with Moses today. Now, the problem for me is I just like to get there, right? Anybody feel me? I just like to get there. I just want to, I want to be there. We went somewhere this week and my wife said, wow, you made good time. And I said, I wasn't trying to make good time, but I was lying. Of course, I was trying to make good time. Especially now that we have those little things on our dash, the GPS units that tell us what time they think we ought to be there. <laughs> right? Don't tell me what time you think I ought to be there. I can beat that time. It's the same reason that... Well, I feel uneasy when police officers follow me. You understand that, right? But just, just let me give you a little bit of marriage advice in case you don't make it to the love and respect thing. Here's a little marriage advice for you ladies. Saying to your husband, you made good time, is the same thing as him saying to you, have you lost weight? I mean, it works the same way. Okay? So just file that back for later. Okay? Now, imagine that you're Moses and you don't have three whiny kids in the back seat. You have two million uh, they estimate that the children of Israel between 2 and 3 million strong when they left Egypt. Because they had been there for 400 years. That's part of the story that we kind of miss along the way. Joseph to Moses was 400 years. Okay? And so these people had multiplied like rabbits. And that's why the Pharaoh was like, we can't let them keep doing this. We have to start killing their baby boys. Which is why Moses was almost killed. But by God's providence, he wasn't. He went and was raised in Pharaoh's daughter's house and became the leader of them all. But these are the people that he is leading. There's two, two to three million people that he's leading on this trip that ends up taking 40 years. And these are the same stupid people that last week made a golden calf 40 days after God specifically told them not to worship idols or any other gods. They made a golden calf because beer is good and people are crazy. Okay? Here's the problem. The journey that you should take if you're leaving Egypt and you're going to the promised land looks something like this, okay? You should go from Goshen up to Canaan, right? I mean, the, the shortest distance between two points. And it was actually a very well-traveled road. It was called the Way of the Sea. It was a very popular road. People were on it all the time. And, and so if you're leaving Egypt and you're headed to the promised land, the land of Canaan, it would be about 175 miles, and that sounds like a lot to walk, but, you know, it's it, over a journey with all these people, they could have easily done it because it was a widely traveled road, lots of nice scenery. Put this into context. It would be like us, 175 miles is Springfield, Illinois, okay? And I know that, you know, using Springfield, Illinois as an analogy for the promised land is a real problem for you, but just stay with me, okay? So if you're going to go to Springfield, Illinois... You're going to go basically down I-55, right? I mean, that's how you're going to get there. That's the normal thing that you would do. You would make that happen. You would head on down that direction. And it just so happens, you might not know this, but, but on, your, on, your, on your smartphone, on your GPS thing there, if you want to find out how long it would take to walk somewhere, there's a little hiking guy on there. You can actually punch it. I know none of you have ever used it before, but you can punch that and figure out how far it is to walk to Springfield. And if you did that on your iPhone, it would take you, it would probably take you about two and a half days to go from Orland Park to Springfield or from Lockport to Springfield. It would take you that long to, to, to get there if you walk. That's no stopping and no sleeping. So realistically, you know, it's going to take you a little bit longer than that, but it's really not out of the question. It's really not out of the question at all, okay? 
But here's the problem. A lot of times we don't go, God doesn't take us where we think we ought to go, okay? God is not a big fan of the direct route. Let me just put it that way. Do you, do you, can I get an amen from you? All right, you know what I'm saying? God is not a big fan of the direct route. And if you haven't noticed this before in your Christian life, you're going to figure this out along the way. That sometimes God doesn't take you on the shortest or the most popular or the most scenic route when you're going in your life. Okay? So they start in Egypt and they immediately go the wrong direction, down to Mount Sinai. This is where we found them last week, where God gave them the law and the conditions of the covenant. And he actually spends about a year with them here at Mount Sinai so that they can get ready with the sacrifices and the offerings and they can learn all the stuff that they need to know. And this time in Israel's history is known as the wandering. The wandering. Okay, Kyle Eidelman defined the wandering as living in the space in between where I started and where I want to be. And God does a lot of work on us and in us when we're in that space in between where we started and where we want to be. And my guess is that I'm talking to some people today that are living in that space as well. Maybe the space in between graduating and getting a real job. Maybe between dating and getting married. Between deciding to start a family and actually having a family. Between the diagnosis and the remission. Between getting into debt, getting out of debt. Between the time of getting let go by your boss and finding another job. Maybe even the time in between saying goodbye to a loved one and then seeing them again in heaven someday. It's the time of in-between, the time of wandering. So the question that I get asked all the time when somebody is going through a period of wandering is, why? Why are we wandering? So I want to answer that today. I'm not going to give you the exhaustive answer because there are other things that get involved in this. Uh, sometimes other people make decisions that send you into the wandering desert times. Sometimes we just live in an imperfect world and bad stuff happens like hurricanes and, and things that are going on in our world around us. And, and I don't think God sends those for the wandering. But there are a couple of lessons that we can learn from the children of Israel about why we get into this wandering time in our life that I want for us to learn today. The first one starts in Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. That would have been the way of the sea. Although that was nearer, and it gives us the mind of God here. It says, For God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So what do you find there? So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. He took them the roundabout way, because God does that sometimes. He takes us on the roundabout way. But notice what happened. God did this, okay? So the first thing I want you to understand about that desert wandering experience is that it's possible that God wants us there so that he can teach us something. It's possible that God has a design to help us. God wants to help us, so he takes us on the roundabout way. I have a second map. This is the roundabout way that they went, okay? They should have gone from Goshen up to Canaan, but they ended up taking a very big right turn and heading down to Mount Sinai. Do you see that? Well, they took a big right turn. Very, very interesting. And it says in Exodus verse 21, the Lord went ahead of them. I want you to notice this. The Lord went ahead of them with a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night and a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Okay? What does that mean? God was literally leading them the wrong way. 
Okay, the people are following this fire at night, this cloud by day, and they're going, okay, we're supposed to go to the promised land, right? Uh, Moses, I think our pillar is directionally challenged. We should be going north and east, but we're going south. What's up with that? Well, it says what's up with that. God was leading them there for a reason. And where did he lead them? He led them to the last place on earth they would want to go. And sometimes God does that. And you know what I'm talking about. And it brings up the crisis of faith that happens all throughout the book of Exodus, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, all throughout all of Christian history as we know it. And the crisis is this. Will I follow God even when I don't understand where He's taking me? Will I follow God when He's taking me places I don't even want to go? Will I stay faithful when I'm in the roundabout way and the roundabout journey? just want to say right up front, we're doing mass baptisms. We've had over 150 people here, and I don't even know how many at Lockport yet. I haven't heard. A lot of people have decided they want to follow God. And, and to some of you, it may feel like a roundabout way. I mean, like, I don't understand. Why, why would I need to get immersed? Why would I need to get dunked? I mean, I, why, why would I need to do that? Well, pretty simply because God told you to. I mean, Jesus did it. God told you to. God told me to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize. So God t- t- tells you to do it. Follow the pillar as it leads you over to the baptistry afterwards. Come back to the back of the auditorium fill out your information and come up here and do it. I know we're going to have a bunch of people that are going to do it at the end of the service. Follow him whether you understand him completely or not. I will explain it to you as we go along the way, but it's not that difficult. Sometimes you've just got to follow God where he wants to go. There was one reason we know of, and that was he wanted to avoid, he wanted them to avoid war. He was afraid if they got into war, even though he would win the war for them, he wanted them to avoid it. They spent a year at Mount Sinai. They spent a year in the roundabout way. Some of you have spent longer than that in the roundabout way. And why was that? Because God wanted to lead them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to spend some time with them. They've been 400 years in Egypt worshiping idols and doing all the things that were going on in Egypt. They spent 400 years there. He wanted to detox them, I believe, a little bit. He wanted to spend some time with them before they would be ready to go into the promised land. And I know that he's done that in my life a lot. Because I think I'm ready to go do something. I'm ready to charge the next hill, whatever it is. But God says, you know what? We need to spend a year over here for a little while because you need to get your stuff together. And I hate that, don't you? Because I'm a GPS beater. Okay? And I know that you are too, so let's just take a little test right now, okay? Uh, raise your, uh, I want you to raise your hand if you're a hurried kind of person, okay? Not, not, not yet. When I ask you... <laughs> Wait for the question, please. Yes, I'm in a hurry. Hurry up. I've cut through a gas station to avoid stopping at a red light. <coughs> People from the south who talk really slow irritate me. And don't dare get behind them driving, right? I become annoyed at the checkout stand when the person in front of me decides to write a check. (laughs) This is not the Flintstones. Use your debit card, (laughs) ma'am. Right? I often find myself finishing other people's sentences for them. Hmm? Okay, when I'm delayed and running late, I'm irrationally upset. Raise your hand. You can also vote for your spouse, okay? Right. 
Yeah, you can point at him if you want to. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, I feel compelled to leave church early so that I can beat the parking lot rush out of Parkview Christian. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. We know who you are. We'll wave at you when you leave. I get this, okay? I understand. Because I don't want to be about the journey. I want to be about the destination. That's my problem, and it's your problem too. The problem is God doesn't feel that way, okay? One of the most irritating qualities about God to me is that he never seems to be in a hurry. Am I right? And oftentimes he takes me in a roundabout way to get to where I think that we're going to go. But here's the lesson that you're going to learn over and over again as we go throughout this story. And it is this. The desert is sometimes a very important place. I mean, sometimes we need to be there. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. Elijah spent 40 days in the desert. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. And at some point, as a follower of Christ, you're going to be guaranteed some time to log into the desert. And it may feel like God is far away, and it may feel like your, 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 your faith is dry, and it may feel like God's not answering your prayers, and you may feel like, man, God, if you would just hurry up and get me over to the promised land, everything would be okay. And God may be saying to you, you know what? This is really important for you to understand. But it's not about the destination. It is about the journey. And I've not forgotten you and I've not abandoned you. But this is true. God's way is rarely the quickest way. And it's seldom the easiest way. But it is always the best way. And he knew what he was doing with the children of Israel. It wasn't the easiest. It wasn't <clears throat> the quickest. But it was the best. He had a plan. God led them here on purpose. And what we're going to learn as we go throughout the story, we've already talked about it multiple times and we're only six chapters in, right? As we go throughout, I mean, you start off with Abraham. And God says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then 25 years later, he has a kid. We got Joseph. He has a dream when he's 17. All the world's going to bow down to me. And then he goes to slavery and attempted a rape charge. And he's in prison. And 13 years later, he finally gets to the point where he can start rescuing the world from their famine. Moses. Moses, here I am in the burning bush. I'm calling you to lead my people. And then 40 years later, because Moses goes off and does his own thing for a little while. Forty years later in the desert, he finally becomes the leader. David is anointed the king over Israel. And 20 years later, he becomes the king over Israel. And a big chunk of the Psalms... Have you ever read through the Psalms and thought, Man, well, man, lighten up, David. Why are you giving God such a hard time? Because so many of the Psalms are, God, why have you forsaken me? When are you going to get this together? Why don't you kill my enemies? What's going on here, God? All of that is going on in the 20-year span in between where he thought he was going to be and where God wanted him to be. And it's going to happen over and over and over again in our lives. And here's what I know about the wilderness, because I've been there myself. What I know about the wilderness is when you're in the wilderness, there's more time to think. There are less distractions. And, 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 and somehow deep down inside, you start to figure out that God is more concerned with who you are than where you're going. That is the truth. God is more concerned with who you are than where you're going. He can flick you right over into the promised land anytime he wants. He's concerned with what's going on in here. So after a year at Mount Sinai, they're just about ready for their journey. Okay? He spends the time with them. And part of this, and I just want you to take that and hang it on a little peg over here. And remember that sometimes God takes us to the wilderness. Sometimes other people send us to the wilderness. Sometimes our world is just a wilderness. And sometimes God takes you to the wilderness. But then we get over to Deuteronomy 1 verse 2. 
and it tells us what the GPS should say about getting now to the promised land from Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 1-2 says it should take, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, which is the promised land. So Moses is like, okay, we've spent time here all together. We've got all, you know, we've got our stuff together. God put us here. We've been a year in this detour, this pit stop. Now let's go to the promised land. It should take 11 years. Here is the map of what their total journey looked like. And I just love this. Is that great? Now, down to Mount Sinai was God's idea. The rest of this whole wandering around like crazy people over here, the rest of that journey... That was their problem, okay? And the subtitle for this should be when your 11-day trip turns into a 40-year journey because what happens in between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land is another 39-year delay. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, tale of a faithful trip, right? How long was it supposed to be? A three-hour tour. That, it was supposed to be an 11-day trip, and it turned into 39 years. Do you know what word Moses hated more than any in the English language? Recalculating. <laughs> one of the reasons why you may be wandering, one of the reasons why you may be in the desert is because God may have led you there like he did to Mount Sinai. The other reason why you're, you may be wandering around in the desert is because you got lost. That's what happens. That's what happens to the children of Israel. God has been feeding them. He's been giving them manna from heaven. This, this part really isn't that important to the story. It just cracks me up, so I'm always going to tell you the crack up parts. They were, they're going through the, they're, they're out in the desert, and then they're complaining to God because God is feeding them manna. Okay, you've got to remember, he's throwing bread at them from heaven, and all they get is bread, 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 and they start to get tired of it, and they start to complain against God, and it says in Numbers 11, I'm reading the message paraphrase, the riffraff among the people, I love that, had a craving, and soon the people of Israel, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Listen to what they said. Okay. Remember, God's just taking care of them by throwing bread from heaven. But that's not good enough. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it free. What were they in Egypt? Slaves. Yeah, slaves get their food free because they're slaves. Okay, just to hate to point that out. But to say, oh, look, there's more. I mean, there's like the salad bar there. There's nothing to say, nothing of the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. <laughs> Wasn't that great? Isn't that just like people are crazy? I mean, it's just all over again, right? I mean, you know, is freedom all that great without leeks? No, of course not. You've got you to gotta have your vegetables. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I love that it says it starts with the riffraff. It always starts with the complaining negative people. The NIV calls them the rabble. As a church leadership, we have another name for them, but we can't repeat that publicly. People start griping. And the instigators start griping. And what happens when the instigators start complaining and whining? It spreads, Right? Even though God is leading them and he's been taking care of them and all this stuff is happening, they can't handle it and they start complaining. Middle of page 72 in your story Bible. Moses heard the people of every family. It spreads to every family. Wailing at the entrance to their tents. Oh, we need protein. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. 
And Moses said to the Lord, What have I done to displease you? That you have put the burden of these idiot people. That's in the Hebrew. You can't understand it. These idiot, crazy people. What have I done that you give me all these people? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? And Moses and God have had it up to here with these people. This is not really that important to our story. It just cracks me up. Because as a dad, I love knowing that even my heavenly father up in heaven, my perfect heavenly father, sometimes gets to a breaking point. (laughs) Because we all do. Lord said, you tell them they want meat. I will give them meat. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You want to read the Bible more, don't you now? I'll give you meat. I'll give you something to cry about. I'll give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for one day, or two days, or five, or ten, or twenty days. Before a whole month, you will eat it until it comes out of your nostrils. And you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord. Is that awesome? <laughs> I, you, you know, I, 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 this has not happened to me, but I've heard this story uh, from other people. Anybody get caught smoking when they were a kid? And did anybody have the experience? I've heard this, I've heard this done, and I, I, I think I'm going to recommend it to you. you that they, they were caught smoking as a kid, so their dad went and bought a big, fat, nasty cigar and made them smoke it until they puked their guts out, and then they never smoked a cigar ever again. Just file that back, young fathers. It might be an idea for you. Get a cigar to keep around in case this happens for you. What, what was God doing? God was saying, you don't trust me. You don't believe in me. You want meat. I will give you meat. And it tells in the Bible that literally, Literally, God sent this, I don't even know what you call quail in a bunch, this huge bunch of quail that that flew in over the land and started dropping like flies right in front of them till it was two cubics deep, three feet deep of quail everywhere they went. And they were eating quail, not for one day, not for two days, not for ten days, but for a whole month. And they had quail literally coming out of their noses. Because sometimes God just gets done with you. He's like, here, if you think you want this, have you ever had the experience where you said, God, i got to have this, i got to have this, i got to have this. And then God gives it to you and you're like, oh, that was really stupid. That was their experience. And that's kind of the beginning of the 39-year journey that's getting ready to happen. But here's where it really gets tough. Here's where it really starts to happen is when they get, finally they get moved over closer to the promised land and God says, I want you to send some explorers into the promised land. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. And from each ancestral tribe, send one of the leaders. So there's 12 tribes, send 12 guys and go do this. So Moses had them go explore the land of Canaan. And they came back as a group and they said, we went to the land of, that you sent us, which is, does flow with milk and honey. It's awesome. I mean, they're just saying it's an amazing place. And here is its fruit. And they literally brought back pomegranates and figs and, and, and they brought back, the Bible says, a cluster of grapes that was so big one person couldn't carry it. And they had to put it on a pole and they carried it between their shoulders. Two people had to carry it. That's how fertile and lush and beautiful this land was. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was a giant, okay? Um, so, so the good news is the land is awesome. The bad news is the people are fortified 
and they're big. Okay, I don't think they were like giants. They were like big people. I got to be on the field Monday night before the Bears game, and I every time you're around NFL players and you realize how gigantic these guys really are, you're like, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't go be a kicker. I won't be a punter. I wouldn't go out on that field for all the money in the world. Those guys are gigantic. That's the experience that they were having right there. Okay, well, yeah, you know what? Um, those people are big and they're well fortified. What were they saying? What they were saying was, we're scared. Yeah, the land's great, and I know God wants us to go here, but we're scared. Matter of fact, one of them said, we felt like a grasshopper next to them. There's drama queens in every group, right? (laughs) Grasshopper. Okay, great. So Joshua and Caleb silenced the people before Moses. There's two spies that are good. There's ten spies that are bad. Joshua and Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And all night long, there's grumbling in the camps of Israel until people started saying, Again, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. Let's get some new leaders and go back to Egypt. And then one last time, middle of page 76, Joshua and Caleb try to implore the people Do not be afraid of the people of those land because we will devour them because this isn't about you, it's about God, right? Their protection is gone, gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. This is amazing. They're so afraid of these people, even though these are the same people who have seen the plagues of Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea parted and they walked across on dry land and then God came and covered the water back over and killed the Egyptian army. They've been following a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day and they've been fed manna and all the quail they could possibly eat. All this has been going on while they have been taken care of by God. Let me ask you a question. Why did God send explorers into the land in the first place? Was it to see how big the people were, or was it to see how awesome the land was? Does God not know what's going on already? Well, go tell me what my competition is. I need to see this. No, God knows this. He knows who's there. The only reason he had the spies go in is because he wanted the spies to come back. He wanted the explorers to come back and say, hey, guess what? The promised land is everything God told us it was supposed to be. Unfortunately, only two of the twelve could see that vision. It's amazing how different the vision that two different people can have. Joshua and Caleb saw the amazing promise of God. They saw the giants. They saw the giant people, the big, well-fortified cities. But Joshua and Caleb saw giants, and they measured it against God. You see, giants versus grasshoppers is not a very fair match. There's going to be grasshopper guts everywhere, right? But Giants versus God is not a very fair match either because there's going to be giant guts everywhere. It depends on your perspective. The ten, the ten explorers, all they could see was the opposition because they forgot who was in charge. The silly thing is, 40 years later, we're going to find out next week, when we come back 40 years later, Joshua's going to go into the promised land. They're going to get to the first city. It's called Jericho. It was a big, well-fortified city. The people are like, what are we going to do? <clears throat> How are we going to get in there? <clears throat> How are we going to make this work? And God says, you're not going to make this work. It was never about you. 
All I want you to do is march around the city once a day for seven days, and on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times and then blow your trumpets. And what are the people thinking there? Blow my trumpets? What kind of a battle is that? But they obeyed, and the walls came down. Because it was always God versus the giants. Never grasshoppers versus the giants. It's always about God and what He wants to do. Again, some of, some of you are looking at that water over there in the baptistry, and you're like, God, really, you want me to march around seven times and then blow my trumpet? You want me to get in, get in and get all wet? Yeah, just, just follow me and let it be about me and what I say. Let, let your battles be about me and my spirit winning your battles for us. Well, the 39 journey, the 39 year journey, just so you know the rest of the story, was the result of this faithlessness. God finally has had enough, and He says, You know what? I'm not dealing with you people anymore. Everybody over the age 20, you're not getting into the promised land. You guys are going to wander around like crazy people out in the desert for 39 more years until all of the older, over 20 people have died off. And then I'll lead your children into the promised land. That's the 40 years in the desert. One year because God said, I need you to grow and I need you to learn. I need you to do some stuff. And 39 years because they just got lost. And what I'm trying to say as delicately as I possibly can is, yes, one of the reasons you may be in the desert, you may be wandering right now, is because God wants you to learn something. It may be that, that somebody did something to put you in that desert, didn't have anything to do with you or God. Maybe that we live in an imperfect world full of hurricanes and cancer. Maybe that God put you there. It could also just be because you stopped listening to God and decided to disobey God and got yourself lost in the desert. I mean, that's just the truth of it. So, let's all admit that that's probably what happens to us a lot more than we wish would have happened to us. And we get to the end of the story and Moses asks for forgiveness for his people because he's a good leader. And he says, Lord... You're slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. We know who you are. We know you're the God of love. And he goes on and he talks about how the sins of, of the fathers sometimes get passed on generationally to the next group because those sins, the, the result of sins, don't go away for us necessarily. But then he goes on and he prays this prayer that I want to pray over us right now when he says, In accordance with your great love, Lord, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Lord, you've been pretty used to forgiving us, right? We complained about not having any food, so you sent us manna. We complained about not having any meat, so you sent us the quail. We've complained about, you know, the plagues, and we complained about the labor, and we've complained and complained and complained and complained, and we've been faithless, and you keep coming back and forgive us. And Moses says, can you just do it one more time? And I want to pray that for us right now. God, will you just forgive us one more time? There are some of us that are in the desert because um, you want us there. You, you put us in a place where we could learn and we could grow, and, and that's um, something that we need to submit to. And there are sometimes some of us in situations that are there because other people made decisions, and we just need to submit to you and trust in you and know that you're bigger than our giants. And there are some of us that are in the wandering time in our life because we got lost, because we quit following you, because we were faithless, and we ask for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness one more time over our land, over our homes, over our people. We know that you're a God whose love is abundant and abounding and exceedingly great. And we thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.
Amen. So, it's time to start over. Okay? It's God versus giants, not you. And the good news is that, that God is not going to keep you from the promised land. Please understand that. The promised land for us is heaven. It's a new heaven and a new earth, and it's based on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Okay? We still have to have faith. We still have to be on this faith journey. But the children of, Israel, the children of Israel's problem, I think, was that they looked at the giants and they forgot about God. So what I wanted to do before we lead into communion, and I'll talk about baptism a little bit more, what I wanted to do was just spend a little bit of time worshiping God and remembering how great God is. When you start to get into a problem, you start to get into a situation where you realize that you're lost again, the very first thing you ought to do is go back and praise God for all the things He's done in the past. If they could have just remembered the parting of the Red Sea, if they could have just remembered the power of God and the plagues and the manna and all the things that He'd done for them, then they wouldn't be afraid of what the future was. So we're going to do that. We're going to see a video testimony about a couple from our church um, that went through a wandering period. And it was a wandering period that the husband kind of put them into. Um, and she had to learn to trust, and he had to learn to accept forgiveness and to trust and to get back on the path together. And it's a great story of a miraculous promised land from a time in wandering. And we show it to you as an encouragement. Then we're going to just sing. We're going to sing about how great the love of God is. And then I'll invite you uh, to take communion, to get baptized. I hope that everybody in this room will take part in those sacraments as we end this service and start following the pillar where it's leading us one more time. In Matthew 3, when we find out about Jesus' baptism, it, it, it says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, Let it be done. It is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? To fulfill all righteousness. So the reason that we get baptized is partially because Jesus did. If Jesus needed to do it to fulfill all righteousness, then maybe we ought to do it to fulfill all righteousness. He was setting an example for us. And you might say to yourself, well, yeah, but just because he did it, did he ask us to do it? Well, yeah, actually he did. Go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them. Well, did anyone else in the Bible get baptized besides Jesus? Yeah, everybody that came to Jesus got baptized. Well, what does God think about this whole baptism thing? Well, here's the rest of the scripture, Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment the heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on, lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Wasn't he pleased with Jesus before baptism? Well, of course he was. He was his Son. But this act of immersion baptism, which was a submission thing for Jesus, like it's a submission thing for us, like the submission thing of, of deciding to follow God in the first place and to have faith in Him, it was something that made God so happy that He parted the clouds and He yelled down from heaven, That's my boy. Now, wouldn't you want to do the thing that Jesus did? That God said, that's my boy. I mean, we had, you used to have those WWJD bracelets and signs and stuff. You know, what would Jesus do? And we were always trying to do what Jesus would do. And I think at some point we all started to realize, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to do that, but I'm not, I'm not so good at being Jesus. Did, did you ever have that problem? You know, I mean, I can't do miracles. I can't raise the dead. I can't feed the 5,000. I mean, I want to act like Jesus. I want to emulate Jesus in my life. But there's not a whole lot of things that Jesus did that I could actually do. There's one thing that Jesus did that made God really 
really stinking happy, and I can do that. And it was baptism. So we're pulling out all the stops this weekend to try to get you to follow God in this meaningful expression of faith. There were many times in, uh, when, when Jesus would ask somebody, when he would heal somebody, he would ask them to do something as an expression of their faith. You know, the man with a withered hand, he said, stretch out your hand. To the lepers, he said, go show yourself to the priest. To the blind man, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. It was like there's a partnership. I'm healing you, but I want you to go do something while you're at it. Okay? It was Jesus who healed them, but he always ask them to do something because we sometimes feel like we need to do something to express what's going on on the inside. Psychologist William James said, an impression without an expression leads to depression. So when you're you're sad, you cry. When you're happy, you laugh. When you're startled, you scream. We have expressions of these things inside of us. When you come to Christ, the very first time people did it in Acts chapter 2, they came, to G- they came to Peter and they said, okay, we're sorry we crucified Jesus. What should we do? Peter said, no, you don't need to do anything. God's, take, God's taken care of. It's all good. Peter said, repent and go be baptized. And so 3,000 people immediately that day in their clothes went and got baptized immediately, just like that. Because there was an outward expression of what was going on on the inside. Now, some of you have been Christians for a long time and you've never been baptized by immersion. Yeah, I understand that. I don't want, I, I, I'm not saying that you need to do this because you're not saved or because, you know, you did it the wrong way and, all you, you know, your grandma's going to hell because she only got sprinkled. That's ridiculous. Baptism doesn't save you, okay? I'll be, I'll be way below Mother Teresa up in heaven. I don't know if she ever got baptized by immersion. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if Jesus did it to fulfill all righteousness, you ought to do it to fulfill all righteousness, okay? And, and saying, oh, I don't want to do that, to me, it's like being a Bears fan, saying, I'm a, I'm a Bears fan, i got season tickets, I'm, I, I memorize all the players, i got all the stats, but I never tell anybody about it. You know, it's kind of a private thing for me. I never wear my Bears shirts, you know, I never cheer for the team or anything, because it's just kind of me and the Bears, you know. We have this little private thing. Well, big deal. They don't know it, the people around you don't know it. It's time for you to make a stand. Now, you're going to argue with me, you're going to say, well, I couldn't do it today. Why not? Nobody in the Bible planned it out. Nobody. They all went and did it at that very hour. Sometimes it was the middle of the night. You say, well, I don't even have a towel. We still have about a thousand towels back there waiting for you, okay? You say, well, I don't have a change of clothes. Hey, guess what? Your clothes will dry. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) They will dry, and it's not too cold out for the end of October in Chicago. So guess what? Maybe God's got you thinking about this. God gave you a, a a beautiful opportunity to be able to do this. Oh, well, I I wore light-colored clothing, and you don't want a wet t-shirt contest in here. No, we don't. (laughs) Thank you for for admitting that. We have dark blue t-shirts that you can wear, and we got about a thousand more of them back there that you can wear, and that's why when you get into the water, it's going to look like a bunch of people in dark blue t-shirts already got baptized in the water. I promise you it's clean. It's just dark blue now, okay? Uh, you're going to say, well, i got to drive home. I don't want to get the seats in my car wet. We've got trash bags for you to put over the seats in your car. I thought of everything. 
What about my cell phone and my wallet and my watch? You go to the back. This is how you do this. You go to the back and you sign up so we know what's going on. And then you come and line up up here. When you go to the back, they'll give you a Ziploc bag. You can put all your stuff in and we will take care of it for you and get it back to you after you're done. It's that simple. Oh, but wait, my family's not here. It's not about you and your family. It's about you and God, okay? If God's leading you, if the pillar is leading you into the waters of baptism and you haven't done that yet in your life and you need to say, hey, I'm going to submit to you, God. I'm going to follow you. I want to do this to fulfill all righteousness like Jesus did. Then get your butt in the water. What are you waiting for? Okay? As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, that's my closing argument. Here it is from Acts chapter 22. It literally says in the Greek, get your butt in the water. But this is the way they translated it. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, calling on his name. All right? What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Here we go. All right? I'm jumping in. You go back and get in line back there, and let's do this. Okay? And if you, uh, some of you prepared, you brought your stuff, good. If you're not prepared, we're going to help you. Just go on to the back, get signed up, and we're going to do this. And we'll do this until halftime, at least, of the Bears game. Okay? Whatever happens, happens. I want you to go do it. Now, for the rest of us, we're going to take communion, and I want the communion servers to get ready to go. And I want to show you one last little thing from the children of Israel wandering in the desert. Okay? Really fascinating. When God told them how to camp as they're marching around the desert, he told them to camp in a specific way. He told them to camp the tribe of Ephraim, and, and those three tribes up on the top, the camp of Dan to the right, the camp of Reuben to the left, and the camp of Judah to the, to the bottom. Okay, do you see that? And he, and he very specifically said, I don't want you to camp to the, you know, the southeast and the northeast. I want you to camp directly on one side of the tabernacle or the other. So as they were camping in the desert, they literally looked exactly like this, which is what? It's a cross because Judah is bigger, Ephraim smaller, and the two sides are exactly the same. I don't know if it meant anything at all, but it's fascinating to me to think that the angels up in heaven who are looking down at the crazy, stupid people of Israel who can't figure out how to follow God very well knew that the crazy, stupid people in South Chicagoland in 2012 who can't follow God very well either are going to be in the same boat. But the difference for us, the advantage for us, the beautiful reason that we have communion and the sacrament of uh, communion and the sacrament of baptism that we're going to witness right now is because we live in the new covenant. And Jesus said when you pa when you pass these cups down this is the cup of the new covenant. And because of the cross, they could look down from the sky and see the cross and know that someday Jesus was going to come and die on that cross and save us from our sins. And no longer will we be judged by how well we follow God or how faithful we are to God or, or whether we can follow the commandments or not. For whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life because Jesus nailed the code to the cross and now all we do is follow him. But if you haven't followed him during communion as they pass right now, get up. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. Just head to the back, and we'll line you up, and we'll get ready to go. Let's pray right now, and we'll pass the trays.
Lord God, I thank you for these uh, people that are battling it out right now with Satan. Satan doesn't want them to come and jump in because he knows they're going to be making a commitment. They're going to be pledging their allegiance to you. I pray that you'll be with them as they get up and as they do this. And for the rest of us, maybe who've done it before or wherever we're at in our journey as we sit here, we're going we're gonna to be thankful for the cross. We're going to be thankful that we don't live under the old covenant anymore. That that was just a way of you helping them to understand that Jesus needed to come. That's what the old covenant was for, just to show us how badly we need the cross. And we accept the cross today, and we're thankful for the cross. Be with us as we commune in Jesus' name. Amen.